following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Many of you know very well that we're kind of entering that season of sickness. It starts when the kids go to school and ends when they are done with school. But we're in that season, and, and you know when you get sick, and uh, we, we have learned with our kids, there, there are those, those tells, those things that we know. When we look at our kids, we just look at them, and we know they're sick. With Emerson, she gets kind of droopy-eyed. Her eyes just look really tired and droopy. With Chase, he loses energy. With, with Chase, you know that means he's sick. <laughs> he just loses all his energy. He just wants to sit around and do nothing. Hayden just randomly falls asleep. Doesn't matter what time it is, doesn't matter where she's at, she's going to pass out. And we know when we see these things in our kids, we're like, okay, they're sick. But there's always a next step for us. We see these things, we know they're sick, but what's the next step? We get a thermometer and we take their temperature, right? That's how you know for certain that they're sick. We want to check. We want to see if they have a fever. We want to know what's going on, not just in the way that they display, but in what's going on inside of them. We've been talking through our study of of 2 Timothy about building, about feeding, about maintaining, about being purified by the fire of faith in Jesus Christ. And it's all been really good instruction up to this point. We've seen a lot that we go, okay, we can do this. And if we do this and we do this and it looks like this, right? But if you're like me, you know that there are times in your life, there have been times in your walk with faith where you feel like you're doing the right stuff, but it just doesn't feel right. You're doing the right things, but you just feel like there's an obstacle there. Like maybe I'm not moving in the right direction. Maybe I'm doing the wrong things or with the wrong purpose. And if you're like me, you have to stop and ask yourself, well, okay, how do I know I'm on the right track? You ever been there? How do I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing? In today's passage, we're going to find three assessments three questions that will act as a temperature check on our faith that will help us assess not just am I doing the right actions, but is what's going on inside matching those external displays. These three questions help us understand what's going on in our hearts and help us to continue to move in the right direction. And the first question we're going to find is in verses 20 and 21 of 2 Timothy 2. And the question we ask ourselves is this, what vessel will I become? What vessel will I become? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 says, Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Okay, what vessel will I become? Paul gives this metaphor of a large house. And when he talks about the large house, what he's saying is the church, 
This is what he's been talking about through the whole letter. It's about what's going on in the church. So here he says the large, the, the large house is the church. The vessels are the individuals who exist within the church, you and me, as individuals. And he says with, with these individuals, these individual vessels in the very large house, he said there are two distinct groups. There's the, the honorable group and the dishonorable group. Honorable, he says, listen, there, there are vessels of, of gold and silver. These are those with a strong, committed faith. Those who stand firm in the truth, as we've seen throughout this letter. It's called to those who, who re, re, retain their grasp on the truth, and that is the foundation of their lives. These are the honorable vessels. And then he says there's dishonorable vessels, those of wood and clay. Now, the significance of wood and clay is that wood and clay are disposable. Gold and silver are there to stay. Wood and clay are disposable. What he means by these who are disposable are the, the false teachers and the false teachings that he's been talking about for these last two chapters. Those who refuse the truth and instead build their lives upon what they want and what they think. See, I think sometimes we we read like this passage and we're like, okay, the, the dishonorable and the honorable, right? The, the, the honorable are the people who do lots of really good stuff, right? And the dishonorable are people who know Jesus, but they're just not quite on track, right? We kind of make this distinction of like fine China and your everyday dishes, right? The honorable ones are that fine China. They look really good. They're very special. And then there's the dishonorable. That's everyday dishes. That's not what Paul is talking about. The comparison Paul makes here is more along the lines of, of the honorable are fine china, the dishonorable are chamber pots. It's not about those that are okay, just not quite good enough. It's those that are disgusting because of the rejection of the truth and the rejection of who God is and the rejection of Jesus Christ himself. What that means is if we stand on the truth, we are honorable vessels. None of us are more honorable or less honorable. And none of us get to sit in the middle of those two. We're fine china or we're chamber pots. Which are we going to be? If we want to be purposefully deployed for the gospel as a special instrument, as Paul puts it, we must reject false teachings and cling to the truth for the sake of God's kingdom. And we've talked about this many times about how attractive and how seductive the lies of our enemy can be. And we've talked about how false teachings may even feel good to us. How many times do you see false teachings go, man, that would be so much easier to live by than the truth of God's word. Wouldn't I get what I want if I just did this instead of what God has called me to do? Right? Those lies feel good to us. They're attractive. They are seductive even as they lead us to hell. But at the end of the day, whether we stand firm in the truth or we, come, or we become disposable, dishonorable vessels, rest squarely on the shoulders of our own choosing. We choose whether we want to follow the truth or we want to follow the lies of Satan, of our culture, of our world. Honorable vessels choose the difficult road of following Christ. Let me see this in Joshua, right? Joshua 24. 
a passage many of you know very well. As Joshua comes to the end of his time as the leader of the Israelites, he gathers the people together and he gives them the speech. And the close of the speech is, is very famous. Verse 14 and 15 of Joshua 24 Joshua says to the people, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. But, hear him? Worship the Lord and do nothing else. But, if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves this day, which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you are living? As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Joshua says, you have a choice. He doesn't say you have to worship the Lord or we're gonna strike you down dead. He says, no, you you can choose. Worship the Lord or worship the false gods. What do you wanna do? He says, I know what I'm doing. I know what my family's gonna do. We have the same choice to make. And it's not a one-time choice in our lives. Oh, I, trust, I trusted in Jesus, so I always follow him. Now, no, no, it's a choice that we make every single day and every single moment of our lives. Yes, we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. But we always remember, God will not work on those who are unwilling. God will not work on those who are unwilling, right? We can't just say we want to be honorable vessels and expect that now we're going to be honorable vessels. We're going to stand firm. We're going to be strong in the faith. We're never going to waver if we're not willing to do the work. I debated whether I was going to share this with you today or not, but what kept coming to my mind every time I I worked on on this uh, part of this message was a scene from The Office. And you remember The Office? Michael Scott, the lovable dope of a boss, he finds himself in financial trouble. And and, and, And somebody gives him some advice. You know, the only way out of this is to declare bankruptcy. So Michael Scott walks into The Office And he looks over the office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. And the very next scene, he's sitting in his office and one of the accountants comes in and goes, "Uh, Michael, you know you can't just say bankruptcy and expect something to happen. And he says, I didn't say it, I declared it. (laughs) So he thought just saying the words would do the work. All he had to do was say the words. But declaration without surrender means absolutely nothing. Let me say that again. Declaration without surrender means absolutely nothing. Paul talks about the false teachers with Titus. In Titus 1, verse 16, he says, They, they again are the false teachers. These are Judaizers, those who say, Jesus Christ is good, but you also need the law. You also have to do this and do this and be this. And then maybe you'll be good enough for God. He says, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. He says they do good works. They claim to know God, but everything they do denies him. Since they claim to know God, are they acceptable, honorable? No, they claim to know God, but because they deny him by their works, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit. To be set apart as honorable vessels requires on our part a daily active commitment to cling to the truth and to follow Jesus Christ. 
It requires a daily moment by moment active commitment because it is unnatural to our flesh. It's unnatural to who you are. It's unnatural to who I am to surrender constantly. But we have to wake up every morning and choose to follow Jesus. What vessel will I be today? What vessel will you be today? It starts right there. What kind of vessel will you and I seek to be? As part of confronting this idea of what vessel we will become, Paul continues on and he says, we must also daily ask ourselves, what passion will I pursue? Verse 22 says, what passion will I pursue? Watch how he continues here. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul says, okay, what kind of vessel do you want to be? And if you know what kind of vessel you want to be, what passion will you pursue? He begins with this very clear instruction. He says to Timothy, flee, flee. Maybe your, your Bible translates it a little different. Maybe it says avoid. Maybe your translation says shun, which is probably the most literal translation of that Greek word. Whatever your translation says, the idea is a complete rejection of this thing. Reject it fully and completely and leave it behind, never to come back to it again. He says, flee. Flee from what? Youthful passions. Okay, what are youthful passions? Look at the passage. What's the context say youthful passions are? It doesn't. He doesn't explain what he means by youthful passions directly. I'm guessing that youthful passions in this context are not playing video games all night long and having ice cream for breakfast. As many of us would say, that's a youthful passion, right? He doesn't tell us exactly what he means by youthful passions, but what he does is he gives us the opposite of youthful passions. As he continues this verse, he says, flee from youthful passions. Instead, you are to pursue divine passions, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Again, things that do not come naturally to you and me. Things do not come naturally to the human flesh. These are divine passions. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now we could take time and we could parse each one of these out and try to talk about what each one of them means. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. Instead, Paul wants us to focus on how these combine. What's he talking about at the center of all of these? At the center of righteousness, faith, love, and peace is other-centeredness. All of these point to other-centeredness. So really what we see in this verse is the difference between youthful passions and divine passions is a matter of who's at the center. Who's at the center? It's not even necessarily about this specific act or this specific act or this specific act. It's about who is at the center. Matthew chapter seven, 
Verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. These are some of the most terrifying words in the entire New Testament. Because what Jesus is saying here is he'll say, there are many who did everything they were supposed to do and did it really well. And I will say, away from me, I never knew you. Well, why? How, how, can, how can that be? Right? These people did godly things and did them in ways, let's be honest, you and I, I don't know about you, I, I am yet to cast out a demon. I'm yet to do a miracle in God's name. Right, I'm yet to prophesy, give a new revelation of who God is. And yet, God doesn't know those who do. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of what they did. It's the fact that they did this thinking they would be good enough for God. God, look what we did for you. God, look how good I was. God, look, look, look over here, right? You know your kids when they're running around? God, look, look, mom, dad, look, look, watch, 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 watch. See what I can do? God, look at me. I'm fast. Look how fast I can run. Look how fast. Oh, look. Oh, oh, oh. That's what these guys are doing to Jesus. Look at how good I am. Look how much I did. I did all this stuff in your name. Aren't you lucky to have me? Jesus said, this is about you. This isn't about me. This isn't about my kingdom. You did this about you. Away from me, I never knew you because you are not serving me. You are not loving me. You are not pursuing me. You're pursuing a passion for your own gain. The difference between immature and mature faith is not a question of even necessarily did I do the right thing. It's a question of why. The question is not did I read my Bible enough. Reading your Bible is important. It is crucial for your growth and development in the Lord. But the question of a mature faith and immature faith is not, did you read your Bible? The question is, why? Was it to gain enough knowledge to impress others? Or was it to draw near to Christ in humility? The question is not, did I stand for the truth? Did I stand on the truth and stand my ground? But the question is, did you do it peacefully and lovingly, encouragingly to those around you? The question is not just, am I nice to others? But the question is, do I practice hospitality beyond the limits of my comfort in order to love others and welcome them into God's presence, God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy? See, what we do is important. Don't hear me say it doesn't matter what you do because it does. What we do is important, but so is why we do it. And for us to do even the right things with the wrong motives, it's to pursue a passion for ourselves, for our own gain, so that we can be elevated, so that we can be known, so that we can be celebrated. You know what that's called? Idolatry. It's called idolatry, even if you do the right things. We have to be willing to examine our own hearts and correct not just our actions, but our motives along the way. 
Listen, I don't say that as like, a, here's a really simple thing for you to do this week. I know the difficulty and the struggle of that. It's not an easy thing. But if we want to live a mature faith, building that hot, strong faith in Jesus Christ, then we have to be willing to examine our own hearts. So what vessel will I become? What passion will I pursue? As we seek to be useful to the kingdom, we must seek divine passions to serve the Lord and to serve others. But how do we do that? In verses 23 through 26, Paul presents the, the pertinent question for our next step. He asks, what approach will I engage? What approach will I engage? Verse 23 through 26 says, but reject, foolish, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What approach will I engage? Paul doubles down here on something we saw a couple of weeks ago when he made this command against contentious and malicious speech. Verses 14 and 16 of 2 Timothy 2. In verse 23, he says, you are to do these things right? because they only lead to fighting and contempt amongst all of those involved. Right? Malicious and contentious speech only leads to problems. Instead, he says in verse 24 and 25, here's three characteristics of a faithful servant's response to opposition, to correction. And he says three things. First, he says they are gentle to everyone. This stands directly in contrast to the contentious spirit, the contentious speech. Right? The contentious speech says, I want to make mountains out of molehills and make sure you know how right I am and how wrong you are and just get on my page or get out of the way. The one who is gentle, right? gentleness, Pastor Ron talk, touched on this last week, but gentleness is really power under control. It's not being weak. It's not being a doormat. It's knowing the strength, the power that you have and keeping it under control, being gentle. We're going to be gentle, not just with those we like, not just with those who agree with us, but to be gentle with everyone. So gentle to everyone. Second, able to teach, right? Able to teach. This is not a matter of amassed knowledge. Being able to teach doesn't mean you know more than everybody else. Being able to teach is a matter of being clear and concise in your communication of the truth in a way that your hearer can understand. Right? That, that sounds like kind of a long definition there, but, but you know how this works, right? I could sit here and give you scientific calculations. I couldn't, but I could bring somebody up who could give you scientific calculations on all kinds of crazy physics stuff. And I would sit in that seat along with you and we'd probably go, what? Does that mean that person doesn't know anything? No, they know way more than us. They just don't know how to communicate it to us in a way that we can understand. And if we haven't understood it, has any teaching happened? No, that person has given a lecture. They've talked a lot but they haven't taught anything. 
Teaching only happens when we understand what is being said. And so he says, the one, the one who, uh, who is serving the Lord, who's growing mature in their faith, understands how to teach. Again, it doesn't matter how much you know or how little you know. If you know anything at all, you can teach that to someone else. He says, we must be gentle to everyone. We must be able to teach. And third, patient. Right? He says, patient. Patience in the context of, of facing opposition in our lives is a, a matter of being able to listen. Being able to seek to understand the one who stands in opposition to you. My patience is saying, I, I, I know what I believe, but I want to I hear what you think. I want to hear what you say. I want to hear your heart. I want to know where you're coming from so that we can actually have a conversation so that I, I can be gentle with you so that I can know how to teach. And why is all of this so important? Well, the second half of verse 25 through 26 he says, if we are gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, <clears throat> then the one who stands in opposition to us may have their heart open to the Holy Spirit. He says, you want to open someone's heart to the Holy Spirit, be gentle, be able to teach, and be patient. Self-righteous, intellectual, judgmental instruction, even if true, will accomplish nothing in our lives. But gentleness invites a heart to repentance in Jesus' love, grace, and mercy. See, we will never overcome opposition in our lives. We will never overcome false teachers and false teachings by crafty arguments or by shouting them down as, as evil, wicked sinners who should probably just figure it out. But when we encounter opposition with gentleness, with the gentleness of God's kindness, we open an opportunity to change a heart, to change a life. Not because of who we are, but because it puts them in a place to be open to the Holy Spirit working in them and through them. But let's be honest. When you're facing opposition, <clears throat> to be gentle, able to teach, to be patient, did those come easily? No. No, most of us will either, faced with opposition, we will either shrink back and take it, or we will explode and tell you everything that's on our mind. That, that's where most of us will find ourselves. But the call here is to be gentle, to be able to teach, and to be patient. We're to respond to opposition with gentleness, understanding, and patience. Should I say it again? We're to respond to opposition with gentleness, understanding, and patience. And we see this throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19 and 21, the Apostle Paul writes, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty... Give him something to drink, for in doing so, you will be reaping fiery coals on his head. <clears throat> do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Right, how do we respond to opposition, to evil perpetrated against us? By being strong and fighting and punching back? No, with good. 
I don't like that. I wish God had said something different. It would make me much happier. But that's what he says. And really, all Paul is doing here is, is reiterating, reiterating what Jesus said. Again, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 41, Jesus says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Are we willing to go an extra mile with a person who hates us? This isn't about your family member who borrowed a pair of shoes and now you've got to walk an extra mile without your shoes with them. This is about the one who hates you. The one who is opposed to your very existence and every thought and every word that comes out of your head. You willing to go an extra mile for that person? What does that mean? What does that mean for us in our daily lives? Maybe that means being kind to a coworker who talks badly about everyone, who speaks behind their back constantly. And your job is to be an encouragement in their lives. Maybe it means offering a godly word to Debbie and Danny Downer who live next door. Everything is awful. They're unhappy about this. They don't like that. Nobody does this well enough. If somebody would just listen to them, everything would be right. And everything in you is like, see you later. Walk away, right? But, but how do you love them? How do you give them an encouragement? How do you continue to show God's love, God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy to them? All right, maybe... Maybe it goes even further. Maybe it means taking time to recognize the image of God even in those who mock your faith. Oh, you want to really hurt? You want to really hurt? Maybe it means stopping and recognizing the image of God in that political figure who is opposed to everything you believe in. You're a Republican? You know what? The Democrats are made in the image of God. Are you a Democrat? You know what? The Republicans are made in the image of God. You still want to talk about them the way you've been talking about them? I'll move on. <laughs> See, by this approach, we show God's grace. We allow the Holy Spirit to engage the heart. And we create opportunities for God to break others out of the intoxicating effects of the lies and half-truths that our enemy, Satan, and that the world around us throw at us. We've said this many times in many different ways, but the truth remains. Nobody's impressed by what we know if we show them no love whatsoever. Nobody cares. 
But when we engage with gentleness, concern, patience, and love, that opens doors, that changes hearts, that points the lost and the hurting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminds them that no matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, the God who created the heavens and the earth loves them and loved them so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, rise victoriously to deliver them completely from sin and destruction that is so prevalent within their hearts. Why? Not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Because we are no better than them. We are no different from them if we are left in our flesh, if we are responsible for being good enough, for being strong enough, for being smart enough, for being righteous enough according to our standards and according to our views of the world. No, we are all lost and dead to sin. We all deserve to be rejected and left behind forever and ever and ever. But God in his infinite love refused to leave us there and he will refuse to leave them there if they will turn. If they will repent, there is hope. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter where they've been. But I'm telling you, they only see that. They only start to believe that when they see God's love poured out on them through you. Because you might be the only person in their life who offers them a look at hope, at love, at acceptance. comes down to what approach will you and I engage? Very often, we talk about growing and maturing in our faith, and we are focused on, on the outward actions because that's, that's an easy thing for us to measure, right? It's easy to know how much I've read my Bible this week. It's easy to know how much time I've spent in prayer. It's easy to know what ministries I've been involved in whether I've shared the gospel with someone or not. And these are, these are excellent and necessary questions for us to ask of ourselves. But, but we can do every single one of them while completely rejecting the authority and power of Jesus Christ. We can do every single one of those things without the Holy Spirit's help. We can do them while actively seeking our own glory over the glory of the kingdom of God. So while we do need to be aware of our actions... It's important to remember that they are meant to be an outpouring of our hearts. They're an outpouring of our hearts. To understand where our hearts are, we must consistently ask ourselves about the temperature of our faith. What vessels do we seek to become? Will we be honorable or dishonorable? What passions will we pursue? Passions for self-centered results or kingdom-minded purpose? What approaches will we engage? Approaches that seek to tell others how wrong they are and how right we are? Or approaches that seek to gently love and instruct towards the gospel of grace and mercy? Church family, may we be a people of gospel-centered focus. Let us be a people of clarity, not just in what we do, but why we do it and for whose glory it is done. And by this, may our faith in Jesus Christ burn hot and bright as we surrender to the Holy Spirit to share God's love, God's grace, God's mercy with every person he brings into our lives. And in doing so, we, may we know true purpose and joy and hope and significance in every moment, not because of what we do, but because of the one who calls us to do it. May we be the church.
Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift we have of being your children, for the blessing we have of being shown the truth, the truth of who you are, the truth of your love, your grace, your mercy, the truth of the redemption we have when we repent, when we turn away from our sin and turn and run after you with all that we have and all that we are. Lord, we thank you. And we ask now that as we prepare for whatever you have in store for us in this day, this week, this month, this year, the rest of our lives ahead, Lord, may we continue to seek to be honorable vessels who pursue a passion for your kingdom and who approach that with gentleness, love, and patience. Not so that we can be successful, but Lord, that others may know you and love you and serve you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.